Would you grab your Bibles and open up to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2 will be our primary text after the Gospels, Romans for a second, Corinthians, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. And the table of contents is always your friend. You can type it in as well in those digital devices that you brought. Um, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. A couple of things that we want uh, everyone to know about before we jump into this particular text uh, is that in a couple of weeks, we're going to be moving our communion time from after the sermon to before the sermon. Two quick reasons as to why, though we would be happy to have a two or three hour long lunch to discuss it more with you. Um, we're not including our children who know Jesus. They are being dismissed to their class, and then we have communion after they leave. And so as an elder team, we've been convicted that the kiddos uh, who are part of our church family, we are withholding the table from them. And so we want to make sure that we don't do that uh, any longer. So in a few weeks, we'll be moving. And also, uh, increasingly convicted about the centrality of the table. And it can feel as though that the sermon is sort of like this crescendo for us culturally. And then after that, we put our jackets on, start moving towards the door, and fail to truly be in the moment with uh, time around the table. And so we're just going to take a little bit more time. I've been guilty of this, of rushing too quickly, because I feel like time is pressing after uh, the sermon, and yet we want to make sure to give that uh, the attention that it is due. Uh, also, Ash Wednesday, 7 a.m., February 26th, will be about a 45-minute gathering so that you can get to school, get to work, get to your day, and yet have the ashes administered over you. This is a time of recalling and understanding our mortality, and yet that Jesus has defeated death. And so it's a way of being marked as God's people, as throughout church history, God's people have done so. And so Wednesday, February 26th, 7 a.m. at Inner City Impact will be a time for us to remember our mortality, yet to remember that Jesus Christ has defeated death. Amen? Amen. Some of you are like, not, I do not amen 7 a.m. Well, you're, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to be there um, on February, February 26th. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Colossians chapter 1. If you remember, we're taking a few weeks to look at this entire letter to give a, a bit of an overview about what the Apostle Paul and Timothy uh, have written. And in particular, we found this theme of Christian maturity to be really central, not just to the first chapter, but the entirety of the letter. Uh, Christian maturity, or rather uh, maturity in Christ, can be defined as we did as increasing dependency upon Jesus. Increasing dependency upon Jesus. Biblical discipleship will never lead you to a place where you can say, I don't need God anymore. I don't need him in this one way. I don't need him in this area. Christian maturity does not get you to a place where you need Jesus less and less. On the contrary, Christian maturity is an increasing awareness of your utter dependency upon him. The closer I get to Jesus, the more of my heart is revealed that is desperate for his care. And so that's what we have, have understood, that Christian maturity is this transformative work that is made only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. After all, our default assumption is that maturity is exactly the opposite. It's an increase in independence and self-reliance and autonomy. What we'll consider today with that sort of in the background and in our consciousness from chapter one is that we'll consider uh, the opposition that we face in maturity, particular spiritual opposition. Many of us perhaps rarely think about spiritual opposition, and I think it's really easy to neglect it because we live in a physical world, don't we? And, and therefore, throughout Scripture, though, we must pay careful attention to this language of spiritual warfare. 
Spiritual warfare in the scriptures is not relegated to some denominations within the Christian church family, but it must be for every Christian to consider and understand. After all, was there not a cosmic battlefield that our first parents faced Satan in Genesis chapter 2? Was the cross not a cosmic battlefield of Jesus over his foe, Satan, sin, and death in Luke chapter 23? And doesn't Paul, and to the Ephesian church, call them to put on what? The full armor of God. And to the consummation of all things, King Jesus will return completely and utterly in control over every square inch of the invisible cosmos and the spiritual realm. He will wipe out the evil one in his dark reign and momentary dominion that he has right here and now. But today, our battle is real subtle. It is incredibly subtle. It's so subtle that I think we miss it on the regular. So with the cross in the background... And the renewal of all things, the coming together of heaven and earth ahead of us, we have to grapple with a number of challenging realities. See, the armor of God was invisible. The battle uh, is spiritual. We we can't taste, touch, and see it in the same ways. And we're also taught this incredible uh, sort of tentious sort of idea that the battle is already won. Jesus wins. Right? This, is, this is a familiar and should be a joyful call of the Christian that the battle is already over, Jesus has already won, and yet, paradoxically, we continue to face a battle every single day. What's more, the posture of the battlefield is informed by the cross. Jesus dies in conquest over sin. He rises the champion of death. See, through death and substitution comes life and victory. It's, it's like the priest and Professor Henry Nowen, as he describes what he calls downward mobility. Triumph comes through weakness. This is paradoxical to us. We would think that in order to, to be victorious, we, we must be strong, we must be bold, we must storm hell with a water pistol, we must go after it and get after it. Do work and slay, as some of you might like to say, and you should stop saying that. Henry Nouwen confronts what is familiar to us, what he describes as upward mobility, as he writes in his book, The Selfless Way of Christ, Selfless Way of Christ, this, the story of our salvation stands radically over and against the philosophy of upward mobility. The great paradox which scripture reveals to us is that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The word of God came down to us and lived among us as a slave. God chose to manifest the fullness of divine love in a man whose life led to a humiliating death outside of the city. The downward way of Christ, or Christ's condescension as some put it, is first cosmic. The Son of God became man. Secondarily, it's it's a posture, it's a way of life that Jesus consistently lived throughout his life. He drew near to the oppressed. He was close with the hurting. He hurt with the hurting. He identified the forgotten. He loved the unlovely and he mended the broken. Thirdly, it was substitutionary. He died in our place and for our sins. Therefore, through this cruciform work, Jesus makes us mature. He makes us whole. He makes us complete in him. And as we we considered, he becomes our representative. He is the one who takes on, on this spiritual battlefield, he conquers Satan, he conquers sin, he conquers death. This is how we have been won in Christ. This is how we have been won by Christ. And by some mysterious grace, how we are won is how we are kept. How we are one is how we are kept through downward mobility. The Son 
keeps us in this posture by which we have been saved. That's to say that the manner of our salvation is the exact manner of our sanctification. You are not saved by grace and then sanctified by your effort and by your work. You have been saved by grace and you will grow by grace. How you are one is how you are kept. If we have been saved through the generosity of God, you will be sustained by the generosity of God. If you did not earn your salvation by impressing the God of the Bible, then you will not be sustained as if you continue to impress him. It is by grace. And so... The power that brought you to life is the power that keeps you alive. How we are won is how we are kept. And so, if the spiritual battle has been won by Christ, we must fight this battle in no other place but in Christ. And that's what Colossians chapter 2 is about. Let's take some time and ask for the Lord's help as we come to this text. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We would be lost without you. We, we are so lost without you that we've convinced ourselves we wouldn't be lost without you. That we think that's the point. I think that's the point. That somehow I can get to a level of spiritual acumen and understanding and personal ability and skill where the spirit of God is negotiable. Where your spirit that resides and dwells within your people is the one I go to when I feel like I need it, but not that I trust gives me the next breath. Father, forgive me for believing that, that my life at the end of this gathering is even guaranteed. Forgive me for believing that these next moments are guaranteed to me just because of some effort or some personal morality that I believe I've attained to. God, I will be alive at the end of the sermon if you will it. The same for my brothers and sisters. And so, Father, may we not approach this text with entitlement, that we just need a little tweak or a little fill-up for our week. We need resurrection. I don't need a little edit. I need transformation. I need my heart to come alive to the things of God and I need to be dead to the world. So Father, would you inform our hearts? Would you sharpen our minds that we would think rightly about you and your world? And would we do this together? Oh, that we would be a people through this. We'd navigate this not only in this moment, but share it with our brothers and sisters, whether in group or in a conversation after the gathering, if you so will. Father, may we become more of a people today through this text. Help us to not build up walls of defensiveness that we're already ready to say, I'm not sinning that way or doing that thing. Would we be broken before you that we might be mended by you? We ask that you would do this and a thousand other things I'm not even smart enough to ask for right now. Would your spirit simply have his way among us? We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone agreed and said, amen. We, we looked at last week that it's best to consider Colossians as written uh, in cooperation between Paul, the great apostle, and Timothy, his understudy. They wrote it particularly to this city called Colossae, but also to a city about 10 miles away named uh, Laodicea. And so they're, they're writing in collection to their brothers and sisters this particular work. Paul was likely in jail. He may have given Timothy an outline. He, he may have simply pushed edits back and forth with him that he may have sort of been like an editor to, to Timothy's writing. Uh, and yet it's it's used or rather written in Paul's voice because of his apostleship. It's coming by way of his authority. And, and this particular aim, the reason they're writing, is to encourage their brothers and sisters. Do you need to be encouraged today? I do. 
I need to be encouraged because I read the news this morning, right? I, I need to be encouraged. I need to be built up. And yet I also need to be protected because even when I face the world, I don't even know what I'm facing. I don't see all the things that I should be seeing. I don't understand all the things that I, I, I see. And so this is why Paul and Timothy are writing. They're writing to encourage their brothers and sisters, and they're writing to protect them. And they'll continue this aim in chapter 2. Look at it with me, the first few verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our authors concluded the first chapter in the exact same place where they pick up the second with this idea of struggle. But relevant aside, we, we see this as two different chapters, but the numbering of chapters came much later after the first letters of the Bible and the books of the Bible were written. The Hebrew Bible took on numbering first, but it wasn't until 1227 when a Parisian professor uh, added chapter numbers, and not all of this took place until the mid-16th century that verses also took numbers with them as well, or rather were given numbers. So all of this to say, we should be really careful if there's a special verse we have because it's the exact right numbers, or it's our address, or it's our birthday, or it's the day that we met our special someone. We should be so careful because those numbers are not inspired. Done with my relevant aside. All, all this to say... Paul and Timothy see the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2, not as the beginning and the end of two different chapters, but from one flow to the next, a simply a continuing thought. And it's with this idea of struggle. Struggle stems from the same root word in both usages. Agon is that root word. The root noun actually means a place or a, of assembly, a place of contest, like a, like a stadium or an arena. Later, this word came to also mean the contest that was taking place within that arena or within that space. And so as this noun takes on this verbal essence, if you will, soon the idea of struggle began to emerge. But because of its etymological roots, agon has in mind not just struggle, but struggle against opposition because it would not be entertaining to watch someone struggle if they were not facing a particular opponent. It would not catch our attention. And so in the Christian life, when this word is employed, it's not about entertainment, but it's about spiritual warfare. So Paul is struggling. Timothy is struggling. He is in jail. He's struggling against gospel opposition, against being mistreated, maltreated, and persecuted. He hears from Epaphras, the church planter who started the Colossian church. He hears that, that, that what's going on in there, not only that they should be encouraged about how the Lord is, is working in them, but that there is a threat, there is opposition. And so Paul and Timothy are struggling. They're bleeding. They're risking their lives so that the gospel would be shaped in their sisters and in their brothers, some of whom he hadn't even seen yet face to face. If you look at verse one, it says, the struggle against opposition is for the sake of ecclesiastic unity, unity of the church. See, union with Christ is union between brothers and sisters, fellow followers of Jesus. If you are united with Christ, you are united with his people. This is Paul's aim as he makes really clear in chapter 1, verse 29. Paul desires that his readers' hearts would be so in harmony with one another that it would look, look at verse 2, that it would be as if they were knit together in love. Can you imagine that? 
that they were knit together in love. Not they go to the same longitude and latitude on Sundays, but they are knit together in love. This type of union is only possible in Christ. This is only true in Christ. See, Jesus, did you notice, is the disclosed mystery of God. How these things begin to take place is in Christ himself. Paul and Timothy write that the treasure of this wisdom and knowledge resides in Christ. This is the epicenter, the beginning place of maturity. And so as one commentator explains, the Colossians need not, must not, look for any source of happiness or holiness outside of Christ. All they need is found in Christ. All we need, church, is found in Christ. Don't look anywhere else. You'll find it in him. See, unity must be a central part of the maturation process because the church will struggle, not just in isolation as individuals, but together as God's people. We will face opposition from outside of our community and from within our community. Look look how Paul prepares his listeners now in verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse five, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the writers constantly building up, constantly encouraging them toward maturity in Christ because they want them to know that their church family can be deceived if they are not careful and they don't want that to happen. They don't want other voices and ideas to come along and delude to them, or delude, rather, their understanding of reality, that they would give them falsehoods that they would deem as plausible. In other words, they would go, that sounds kind of close. That sounds right. See, maturity leads to this firmness of faith that you know the difference between the truth and a lie. You know the difference between the voice of your God and the voice of someone else. See, a faith in Christ is a faith that is able to withstand the struggle against spiritual opposition. This is what Paul wants to build up in his people. And so they must understand how they are won is how they are kept. How they are saved is how they will be sustained. Our writers continue in verse six and seven. Here they'll give us three core elements of the resolve or firmness of their faith that is found in Christ. Look at verse six. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you, were received, as you received, so walk. How you are one is how you are kept. One scholar tells us that, that these verses, from verses 6 through 15, are the center of the entire letter, and that verse 6 is the heart of that particular passage. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul talks a lot about receiving in his letters. In a lot of his correspondence, he talks about receiving. Uh, Parablamano is, is the word that he uses, which occurs rarely. Or in fact, this is the only place where it occurs with a personal object. In other words, Paul teaches about receiving tradition or receiving teaching or receiving a word. But here, what does he say that you received? Christ himself. Christ himself represents the fullness of the gospel and all the apostles' teaching as well as this personal and intimate nature of being a Christian. See, we are not those as Christians who believe this or that or the other thing or this line of thinking and not that line of thinking. Rather, we are those in Christ. We are those with Christ. And we are those, as chapter one and now chapter two will make firm, in whom Christ lives. 
So we are not those who have these different ideas from these different people, but rather we are those who are found somewhere else, grounded somewhere else, with someone else, in Christ, with Christ, and Christ in us. This is incredible. This is, this is, this is spectacular news for us. See, the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, lives in you. Don't tell me you've heard that before. The question is never, is, does that sound familiar to you? It's, do you believe it? Do you understand it? Do you live in response to it? Christ lives in you. Rankin Wilborn, whose book I will quote a lot, because I think it's one of the, the most helpful modern books on the subject of union with Christ, he says this, Christ dwelling in us by his spirit is a guarantee that we can and will change. We are adopted into God's family and not in name only. The Spirit now guides and forms us more and more into the family likeness. Now hear this. The same Christ who overcame temptation and was perfectly obedient, that Jesus is in you now. The Jesus who had compassion on the crowds, who healed the sick, that Jesus is in you. The Jesus who repeatedly shattered racial barriers, with, teaching, with his teachings in his life. That Jesus is in you. The humble Jesus who led as a servant, who washed his disciples' feet, he's in you. The Jesus who suffered and loved to the end, he dwells in you. And the Jesus who was raised to new life, that Jesus is living in you right now. Take that in. My brothers and sisters, this is who we are. See, every world religion makes a claim about the good life. And they're all very, very similar They might use different words and have a different guru, but they all have a guru, a teacher, a sage, a figure. Think Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the Dalai Lama, Ellen. Think about those figures who are sort of the heads, the leaders of a particular worldview and an idea. They come along and they essentially say, this is how you come to God. This is how you come and take hold of the good life. Now, we may assume that our modern pluralistic society does not have this sort of mantra but actually, especially because they don't believe in the spiritual realm or believe in God, but, but let's think about it a little bit more closely. Remember, this is very subtle. When we think about it, the common mantra of the day is essentially follow your heart. Watch any season of The Bachelor. Watch any season. I've watched all of them. You're, this is a confession moment. <laughs> it's the same basic gospel Follow your heart and no one can say anything to you about it because that's your heart, it's your truth, it's your story. It's my heart. To to, to say that is is to essentially say this cannot be refuted nor can it be proven, it just is. This is a particular worldview that says you live this way, you will come to God, you will take hold of the good life over and against This modern expression and every other guru and idea who has preached any kind of news or idea, whatever they have communicated, every religious figure, over all of these stands Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Christ, we do not simply have a message, but we get a person. See, and and he dwells in you and he dwells in me. What sets Christianity apart, please don't miss this, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every other view of the world is that Jesus does not say, here's how you come to God. He says, I am God and I've come to you. It's the exact opposite. Every other view says, you do this, you will be happy and you will find God. Jesus says, I'm God, come to me and you'll be glad. Are you with me yet? 
We've received Christ himself. And here we are instructed to continue to walk. How you are one is how you are kept in him. We are to be rooted in him. We are to be built up in him. We are to be established in faith in him. How we are one is how we are kept in Christ. This reality of being saved in Christ and remaining in Christ and all that comes with what is received in Christ stands in direct contrast to the Colossian philosophy to this view of the world that is being communicated. And the writers are are responding or corresponding together to their brothers and sisters to encourage and protect them from this particular idea. Look at verse eight. They now begin to explain this particular falsehood. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Here the readers are warned about this Colossian philosophy. Since the Greek text includes a direct article before the word philosophy, we can be sure that Paul and Timothy are not negating the importance or the veracity of the study of philosophy. They're not dissing on Plato or the Stoics or Aristotle as if they have nothing to contribute to the mind and life of a Christian. What they are saying by using that direct article is that there is a particular kind of philosophy, the philosophy that is rampant among you. This sort of thing is being articulated by a a Jewish sect, a local Jewish synagogue. These things are the antithesis of the gospel. Paul instructs the church, notice, to not be taken captive by this empty deceit. You see that in verse eight. In other words, they ought to be taken captive by Christ, not by this line of thinking, by this deception. The language employed here of take, take you captive, Sulagagio was a word commonly used about plundering cargo. Don't you love this? That Paul uses this particular word to not be carried off like plundered cargo. And since this warning is at the front of the sentence, we actually get Paul's heart in this. It's incredibly pastoral and loving and caring. He cares for his brothers and sisters to not be captivated by something that would take them away, that would steal them away, false thinking, away from the gospel, away from Christ. These two falsehoods are grounded in what what the writers call human tradition, which is based upon the elemental spirits of the world. The context in the first century and content of the Colossians' situation tells us that these human traditions are likely Jewish, but they're not completely Jewish. Many of the things that will be outlined in the latter half of this particular chapter are not Jewish in and of themselves. They are connected to a more pervasive worldview in Colossae and likely in Laodicea as well. And so to get a wider view, when we look at the whole of Scripture, there are three particular deceptions based on human tradition which really promote uh, this sort of upward mobility that Henry Nouwen writes about. Three things that throughout the Scriptures are deceptive human traditions that that could be in, in Paul's mind here, but certainly should be in our mind today, though we may not have a precise understanding of the Colossian philosophy. The first, wealth is a deceptive human tradition. As Jesus is speaking about the purpose of the parable of the sower, he says this in Mark 4, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Secondly, desire is a deceitful, deceptive human tradition. Paul writes uh, to the Ephesian Christians, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Thirdly, Scripture teaches us not only wealth, not only desire, but sin is a deceptive human tradition. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 3 
says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These are all types of human traditions that, that really from them are, are birthed modern philosophies drafted that have the same effect upon us as it no doubt had upon the Colossian Christians, though it may have looked a little bit differently. These, all of these things are not according to Christ. They're in opposition to the gospel. We are deceived when we trust them. They're not worthy of your trust. Wealth is not worthy of your trust. Your desires are not worthy of your trust. Sin is not worthy of your trust. And when we give ourselves to something that is not trustworthy, it hurts us and harms us. That's why the apostle and his understudy, Timothy, take great pains to warn their church family in Colossae about this tragic philosophy and beckon them back to the gospel. See, human tradition will deceive us. The gospel will tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Human tradition will steal from us. The gospel will overwhelm you with gifts of grace. Human tradition will harm us and harm the world around us. The gospel will heal and restore us and the world around us. Human tradition will leave you unchanged. The gospel will transform you from one degree of glory to the next. Human tradition is ultimately void of power and void of value. The gospel has eternal power and value. So the primary warning is let no one take you captive. Guard your mind. Don't be plundered away like cargo. It flows into the primary point from protection to encouragement. Now we look to Christ. Look at verse 9. This is is our protection. This is how we safeguard our hearts and one another's hearts against shallow, broken, deceitful philosophies. We look to Jesus. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Union with Christ, back in central display. The authors are once again grounding the reality and the nature and identity of Jesus, just like they did in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's about Christ, using very similar language. This is how we are protected. This is how we are cared for. If you want to know what does it mean to live a flourishing life, it is hidden away, made alive in Christ by first beholding who he is. Look, the first thing that that Paul and Timothy say here says that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God, and he is God in the flesh. This is a defining element of the Christian worldview. Jesus Christ must be God in the flesh, or the whole project falls apart. Here we have the complexity and beauty of what theologians call the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. Jesus is at one and the same time, divine and human. This is not just a thrilling doctrinal statement, but no doubt a direct refutation of what the Colossian philosophy was all about. The Colossians were tempted to believe that Jesus was just another teacher, another sage, another rabbi, or way to God, but he's not. He is God. He is God in the flesh. Secondly, not only is the whole fullness of the deity in Christ dwelling bodily, but Christ is head of all rule and authority. Jesus is in charge of everything. Jesus is in charge of everything. Therefore, 
If ideas are being developed about the spiritual realm, those ideas must be understood through the all-surpassing power, worth, and beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. He himself is sovereign over every square inch of the cosmos, including the invisible spiritual realm. What this means is that the Colossians and that all of Christians for all of time, including you and including me, need not fear demons nor Satan himself who dwells in this realm because Jesus is greater, more powerful, more able, more real, more alive, more intelligent, more beautiful, more knowledgeable. He is more and completely over all that persists in the subtle spiritual spaces of this world. The place between this is fantastic. Paced Spaced between these two magnificent claims of Christ. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. Rather, forgive me, 9 and and 10. And you have been filled in him. This is who he is. And you have been, here's union with Christ. We need not search out any other philosophy comprised of human tradition to become like God. We have Jesus. We need not be afraid of the powers of this dark and evil age. We have Jesus. We need not be overwhelmed with fear or sorrow or shame or guilt or ignorance or weakness or disease or dysfunction or destruction or malice. We got Jesus. Am I preaching to you yet? Nothing can befall the Christian who is in Christ that he cannot conquer. And so the writers make this union and blessing really plain. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, written, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I wonder if you heard that. In Christ, we are marked as his people forever through the circumcision of our hearts. We are cleansed of our sins through the forgiveness that comes from Christ. We are brought back to life from the land of spiritual death through resurrection to spiritual life. We are forgiven of our sins because Jesus paid our debts. We are relieved of our moral debts because Jesus' life was more than sufficient. We are safe from the principalities of this age because Jesus is head over all things. We are freed from our shame because he put shame to shame. How, How does this take place? This all takes place for those who are in Christ when you trust in him and confide in him and receive him and remain in him. And in Christ, we are afforded the nature and power of Christ that dwells in us. We become like him. We're kept alive by him. How we are one is how we are kept. Jesus makes you new. Jesus makes you clean. Jesus makes you alive. Jesus cancels your debt. Jesus puts your shame to shame. Jesus overwhelms the spiritual realm. He does all of this. How? Paul makes it real clear. He nailed it to the cross. Having established all of this, established the nature and power of Christ and reaffirmed the Christian's locket of assurance of union with him, the writers take us to the specific refutation of this Colossian philosophy of what they were facing. 
And in doing so, he continues to reveal this subtle war, but it's a war that is waged against your soul and against mine. See, what seems to be superficial, what you and I can quickly read and dismiss as ridiculous discords within this first century context are actually deceptive destroyers of your soul. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of ang- and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. The writers begin in verse 16 with this word, therefore, which helps us to understand they're making a strong connection with what they are about to say, with what they said previously. So they're saying, because of Christ and being in Christ, let no one do two things. Let no one pass judgment and let no one disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment, let no one disqualify you. Paul and Timothy now lay out an immediate refutation of the falsehoods that the Colossians were facing. And they do so with this wonderful admonition of let no one disqualify you, let no one pass judgment. See, people were passing judgment on them or else he wouldn't have needed to say it. People were passing judgment on them and in particular based on what they ate and drank and the holidays they celebrated. Paul quickly reminds them, All of these practices instituted in the Old Testament with Israel, like festivals and Sabbath, were not the point in and of themselves. Rather, they were were shadows. Rather, the substance was to point to Christ. He is the substance of faith in God's word. All of this, including abstinence from physical pleasure and angel worship, going on and on about personal visions and not God's word, all of this is what steals or plunders you away from Christ from what Christ, the head, is really up to building his church and his people, his body. He is the one, not our human traditions and inventions, i.e. religion, that will ensure our collective flourishing. And so they continue in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you you were still alive in the world, do you submit to to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that are that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Religion, at its basic form, is a set of principles, practices, beliefs which get us to God. But as we've already understood and thought about, explained Christ is the one who has come to his people. And so what Paul and Timothy observe and note in verses 16 and 19 are not simply wrong ways of thinking, but notice again in verse 20, they are parts of the elemental spirits of the world. In other words, religion is demonic. Let that settle. It's not just wrong thinking. It's part of the principalities of the the elemental spirits of the world. Legalism is demonic. These refutations of the gospel, of grace, are not just bad ideas. They are fruits of spiritual evil at work in Colossae. That's not Christ. This is not Christ. That's not the gospel. This is the subtle war on our souls, which surface as just different options for your calendar 
for your holidays and celebrations and your diets, but it's really much, much deeper. Notice, in our sinful desires in verse 20, it says we're still alive to the world. What that means is that we and the Colossian Christians can be tempted to believe that our hope is predicated upon human precepts and teachings. Things they say have an appearance of wisdom. Things that we can categorize as self-made religion. All of which have no value. Things that seem right, feel good, look right, seem righteous, seem helpful, but are all fronts of evil. It's subtle. And yet, nevertheless, there are forces of evil at work. So we must be mindful, church, my brothers and sisters. I even sense now there's a dismissiveness to this. The evil one would love nothing more than for us to believe that the spiritual realm is a hoax. Would love for us nothing more than to believe that the invisible principalities are something that we have now graduated past as a progressive society. And so we must be vigilant, we must be careful to consider in what ways are we drawn away from Christ's lordship over his church? What do we trust and believe that will make us whole and complete? What human traditions deceive us? In what ways are we still alive to the world? And what do we hope that is merely an appearance of wisdom? What self-made religions do you trust? Well, we don't have to look far. Well, I'd like to look again at these three deceptions that the, that the biblical writers have brought to the forefront through generations of believers in God, money, desire, and sin. The scriptures teach us that these things are things that we constantly trust, and yet they are incredibly deceptive. Let's look at the first, money. How is money deceptive? Well, the, writer, the, 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 the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not a true lover, nor does it possess real power. And yet we still love money. And we believe that we are safe in the care of money. Money tells us it will be true to us and provide all that we need. But money has no soul. It can do nothing but deceive. See, money never loves you back. Author Paul Tripp writes about how money captivates our hearts in his book, Sex and Money. He says this, money then becomes the savior that delivers all of the things that I think will bring me joy. No longer living for God's glory, but obsessed with my own. I daily ask money to save me from the want and discomfort that is the principal evil I want to avoid. Money tells us it will get rid of all the evil in our lives, but that's evil. Only Jesus can get rid of evil. Desires. How are desires deceptive? Desires tell us, or rather, yeah, that they are the most important things in our lives and they can be fulfilled instantly if we go to the right place. Biblical counselor David Paulison writes in his essay, I am motivated when I feel desire. He, he writes this, our desires deceive us because they present themselves as so plausible. Natural affections become warped and monstrous and so blind us. Who wouldn't want good help? Financial comfort, a loving spouse, good children, success on the job, kind parents, tasty food, a life without traffic jams, control over circumstances. Yet, cravings for these things lead to every sort of evil. The things people desire are delightful as blessings received from God, but terrible as rulers. Biblically, 
A desire is a craving that comes from the heart. And Jeremiah teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If there is one verse that we need to understand in our current cultural moment, it is this. Your heart lies to you all the time. Every pang of your heart is meant to go through the lens of Scripture and be satisfied by your Savior. But often, we settle for worldly satisfaction and are mastered by our desires. Thirdly, the Scriptures also teach us not just money, not just desires, but also sin. And how is sin deceptive? It is always fun. It's always free at first. But it is eternally costly. Listen to writer and speaker Rosaria Butterfield as she explains the deeply deceitful nature of sin. The Bible holds us accountable to sinful desires that we do not choose but that seem to choose us. If we say that only sins of actual choice and execution are the ones that God will judge, we deny the words of Jesus who says that lust is adultery and anger is murder. Sin goes so deep that we cannot know ourselves without turning over the pages of our heart against the pages of the Bible. And sin is not a matter of only making bad choices. Sin is deceptive and deception means being taken over, being captured by an evil force to do its bidding. You know what sin tells us? It's not even sin. The subtle deception of sin and desire and money plague our souls and are at war in our souls, and yet we believe that the invisible realm has no power. Understanding these timeless issues help us then to capture what the Colossians must have been going through. What must have been going through? Their minds. But as always, Paul doesn't just write to expose their sin. We must be really, really careful about this. The scriptures expose our hearts that our hearts might be healed. So you gotta stick with me. You gotta stick with the scriptures as these things begin to pry back deception and darkness and misunderstanding and deception. As all of that is happening, it is the work of a wonderful and loving physician pulling back the layers of deceit that we might be fully and completely healed. See, our eyes are opened by God's Spirit so that we can walk in righteousness and repentance and holiness in power of Christ who dwells in us. And so as we come to the Word, we must always do the same. Confess our sin and receive His grace and forgiveness every time. At the start of verse 20, notice there's a real quick phrase that deserves a little bit more of our attention. Paul and Timothy say, with Christ you died. We, if we were reading too quickly, we may miss it. In, with Christ you died died. It's an odd phrase, isn't it? What are we to glean from it? Well, I I think it may be most helpful to hear this particular doctrinal concept communicated in a fuller sense, stated more directly, and perhaps the best place that this is stated is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Hear this, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been crucified with Christ. And as a result, this death, of this death, we no longer live. Jason Helveston is dead in Christ. He's got, there, there is someone who is very much me who hung and died on that cross because of the work of Christ. There is someone who is very much you who dies the instant of Christian conversion. And how we are one is how we are kept. That person stays dead, thanks be to God. That person does not resurrect, thanks be 
to God. How you are one is how you are kept. If that old person died, the promise of the gospel is that he or she will stay dead. The old is gone. The new has come. This new self emerges, one who is no longer shackled by sin, but freed from sin and not in Adam, not in sin, but in Christ. Romans chapter six, verse six breaks it down well for us. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Help us, Lord. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. See, too often we believe that the Christian narrative, the story of coming to Christ is come to Christ, you can be alive today. That's true, but we're missing a step. Come to Christ so you can die right now and then you'll be brought to new life. See, you're gonna die one day. You can die now in Christ or forever outside of Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. Everyone dies and by grace through faith, you and I can die now and be brought to new life forever. Where there was death and bondage comes life and freedom. Paul says to the Galatian and Roman Christians, I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in in me. How wild is that? Christ lives in you. Christ lives in me. And so the life we live in Christ is no, no longer a life that is bound up in the flesh, aka alive to the world, but a life of faith, alive to the things of God. See, in Colossians, it is precisely the fact that we have died with Christ, been crucified with Christ, that the old patterns and pangs of my life, which would be given over to empty and and deceitful philosophies and human traditions like money and desires and sin, those things are dead to me. I see them as powerless against the, the evil in my heart and in this world. Sure, money is a tool. I know some of us are thinking this right now. Well, I've got money, so what do I do with it? Use it for his glory, not yours. What about my desires? And God give me my desires. Yes, and some of those are broken and they need mending by grace through faith in Jesus. Those desires are meant to be satisfied only in him. And sin is always sin, no matter the perspective you may have on it. See, they are not just things. They become saviors to us and they are terrible saviors. And how you are one is how you are kept. Therefore, I am just as dead to these things now at a cosmic level as I was as a seven-year-old who knelt by my parents' bedside, confessed Jesus as Lord, and confessed my sins for the very first time. What was true of us the moment we believed is just as true of us right now. And the evil one would love for you to think it's not really the fire that burned early on, is it? It's not really the reality that you felt early on, is it? You used to be all hot and excited and all of these double-hand varsity rays every song, and now it's kind of boring, isn't it? That's a lie from the pit of hell. You are just as saved today as you were the moment that you first believed. You are just as alive in him and your old self is just as dead if you are in Christ. Man, that's some good news. That's hopeful for us. Why? Because every day things like money and desire and sin pull at me and say, don't you want a little bit more? Little festivals and circumcision and celebrations and dietary restrictions. These are the things that were creeping up on the Colossians psyche. The good news is that we are no longer bound by the elemental spirits of this world. We're free in Christ. Therefore, hear this. Let's just get incredibly practical if we can for a second. When money tempts you to trust its power, proclaim that Jesus is my treasure. He holds my future. The power of Christ is in you. You can do that. 
So when you're scrolling online late at night, just going, I just feel like I should buy something. I don't even need anything. I'm just gonna buy something. That's the time to preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus is my treasure, not this new thing. It won't help me. What's really going on? When passions tempt you to trust its pleasure, we can proclaim, Jesus is my satisfaction and joy. I only hunger and thirst when I'm not connected to him. This is your joy that is in Christ. That's in you. That is in you right now. When sin tempts you to its ends, we can proclaim, Jesus is my hope and the only one deserving of my trust. He will bring me to his purposes, to his plans, and my power and his power made perfect in my weakness. This is the hope you have in Christ right now that lives in you. This power is in you. This joy is in you. This hope is in you. Why? Because that's how you've been won. How you are won is how you are kept in Christ and Christ in us. This is why we have life in him. All this to say, we still need protection. Though we are alive in Christ because we have died to these dark elemental spirits of this dark and evil age, sin and evil, temptation persists, don't they? We're gonna walk out of this building. Even right now, we may be tempted to some sort of sin or desire or allure of money. Therefore, it's important that we pay attention to this thread that Paul has used throughout the second chapter. This metaphorical language that is different and yet creates this full picture of meaning in verse 6 and 7, it says that we are to be rooted, built up, and established. He, he brings in horticulture language and construction language and legal language. All of this together gives us an impression of something which is not stagnant, but generative, alive, stable, yet grounded in reality. So there is this sense that who we are is set in stone, but progressively we are growing to become who we are. We are rooted, and yet we are being built up. We are established in faith, yet we are abounding in thanksgiving. We are in Christ, but we are growing in Christ. Not only so, but consider verses 2 and 19. We're being knit together in love. And then verse 19, the whole body nourished and knit together grows with the growth that is from God. We are in Christ, but we are still growing. And this growth happens by God's design. That is, in community together. You cannot be knit together by yourself, church. You cannot be knit together by yourself requires community. This metaphor is also familiar in the New Testament, this word picture. It's of the body. Christ is the head and we collectively, the church, are the body of Christ. We are still growing. We are still growing together. And this too falls in line with the idea that how we are one is how we are kept. Because we are not saved for ourselves, nor in and of ourselves. We are not saved in isolation. We are saved and immediately we become the people of God. We become the body, and still, more and more, we are becoming the body. See, one of the greatest misnomers and most tragic earthen philosophies is that our maturity is about me. You see, maturity is about increased dependency. Then it must be a communal kind of development. It's not about me. It's not about my growth. It's not about my life. But within the Christian worldview, in Christ, we're all always growing together. That means, hear this, my spiritual development is totally dependent upon yours. We're wrapped up in this thing. I care about your growth because your growth informs mine and my family and my group and those around me. And my growth, I want to be growing in Christ because that affects my brothers and sisters. One of the lies of the modern age is that you follow your heart because it's all about you. What the Christian scriptures teach us is that as you become mature, you become more part of the body, more together in this. See, I don't have the luxury of saying that things are going really well for me spiritually if my brothers and sisters are suffering. 
I don't have that luxury and neither do you. We are always sorrowful, yet always celebrating. We are always both. See, because we are so connected, we are kept this way, because we were saved this way. To be sure, some of us perhaps just go, salvation is a personal act. Yes, it is a personal act that happens in your heart and mine, but it's not a private act. It's not just for you. It's not just for me. Salvation is a corporate reality of God's people, the church, being set apart for his glory. We have been saved. We are being sanctified together. And so together, we need to fight this war. Together, we must wage this war against the broken philosophies and empty promises of things like money, passions, and sins. We get involved in each other's lives. It gets real uncomfortable around here, doesn't it? You know my story and I'm getting to know yours. We are in each other's kitchen to the glory of God. Because sometimes I don't know when money's trapping me. I don't know when possessions and and when my passions are trapping me and when sin is around me. But my brothers and sisters help me with this and I help you and my brothers and sisters with this. See, the story of the gospel is not here's how you come to God, but here is how God has come to you. A person, not an idea. And the son of God, this person identifies with us for our sake For our good, for the glory of his Father, the God of the universe entered the universe to transform and free creation from the bondage of darkness, open our eyes to the subtle nature of sin and these spiritual spaces that we are so often deceived by. And so now by grace, by his invitation, we are in him and he is in us. What a Savior, what a Jesus, what a God, what a Christ, what a Lord we serve. May we serve him together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. So would you shape us? Would you mold us? Would you make us? Would you break us more into your image, not in isolation, but together as your people, that the way we have been saved would be the way that we are kept by your grace for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.